Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. For more information about our church, visit EdenWorshipCenter.co. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Join us now as we study through the Gospel of Mark, the first of the New Testament Gospels to be written. Our prayer is that as you follow along in your Bible, the Gospel will come alive in your heart and you'll see Jesus more clearly. For the rest of us, we're going to open up to Mark chapter 7. Open up to Mark chapter 7. We're continuing through the Gospel of Mark. Once you find that, keep your finger there and open up to Matthew chapter 15. And if you've got a bulletin or you can take your little ribbon in your Bible and, and just stick it there. If you're using something electronic, never mind. Uh, but we're going, to, uh, we're going to go back and forth a little bit this morning. We'll try to make it clear where we're at. But Matthew's uh, telling of this event sheds a little light on it. And so... Uh, I think it will be helpful for us to refer to that. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 7 primarily, verses 24 through 30. So let's stand up together. If you need a good uh, copy of the Bible, we have some in the back. It's the translation, uh, English Standard Version that we preach from. And if you don't have a good translation, please feel free to take that home. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast, out the, demon, uh, to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you have given your word to us, that you have preserved it that you inspired it, that through it we get to know you. So Lord, I pray, Lord, that this morning you would speak to us through your word, that, that we would hear your voice in your word by your Holy Spirit. You'd give us ears to hear. You'd give us receptive hearts, that, that, that the saints would be encouraged as we look at our great Savior. Lord, that we'd be transformed evermore into your likeness. Lord, I pray for myself as I preach your word, that the words of my mouth, the very meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. Glorify your name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. When I was a young Christian, I was deeply influenced by what we would call faith teachers, faith preachers, the likes of of Benny Hinn and the other various heroes of Charisma Magazine, if you're familiar with that. All the guys they put on their cover over the years. The second sermon I ever preached was called Mountain Moving Faith. 
The basic idea was this. If, if we had enough faith, if we had great faith, then we could, we could move mountains. Which, of course, is what Jesus said. So that's all right so far. Except my idea was, if our faith is, is strong enough, miracles should just follow us everywhere. And if that's not happening in your life, then obviously you've got a faith problem. So what I'm saying to you is that second sermon I ever preached was, was awful. Probably heretical. At least really bumping up against it, if not all the way there. And I'm glad that there's no recording of it in existence. I'm glad that I don't think you can find any of the first 10 years of my preaching anywhere. It's a comfort to my soul. But at that time, even while proclaiming that boldly, even, even while, while looking up to all of these people and, and preaching the same kind of messages they were preaching, there was something that I secretly struggled with all along, and that was this. For everything that I had heard and believed about great faith, I didn't seem to have it personally. I wanted to be a person of great faith, but whatever it was that they were talking about, that wasn't me. I'd listen to these guys. I can remember standing at this big, this big event and this, this guy, Rodney Howard Brown from like Australia or somewhere, this big, huge guy with one of those really cool accents that immediately makes you trust what they say even more. They lined us at this church all the way around the building in a circle, and he went around from person to person praying and yelling words like fire and, and what have you, and they all fall down, and he gets to me, and he does it, and I don't fall down. And I'm trying to figure out, what is wrong with me? I've got this inner turmoil, and we spend several minutes, they're spending about 10 seconds with each people and, and moving on as soon as they fall down. They get to me, and I don't fall down, and it's just a, an extended period, it, it felt like forever, of him like doing things like punching me in the stomach. We're just kind of leaning in close and doing this and yelling things. And finally I said, I'm going to, I'm going to just sit down. You can go on to the next. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't know. Well, that wasn't me being sarcastic. I look back on it now and think, it's kind of funny that I said that to Rodney Howard Brown, except I wasn't being sarcastic. I felt every ounce of condemnation the world had to offer. What is wrong with me? I'm watching a thousand people and God's moving on them and not me. What is wrong with me? I felt such great condemnation. I'm just not the right kind of person. I don't know what it is. And I would plead with God. I can remember nights in the middle of the night getting out of bed and going to our living room there in South Bend and just on my knees pleading with God, God, I don't know what other sins to repent of. I don't know what's wrong with me. Well, here was the problem. The great faith that I heard described, the great faith that I had come to believe, was not the kind of faith the Bible describes. This passage is actually going to show us the kind of faith that God desires from people, the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for, the kind of faith that pleases him, and it's something very, very different than what I believed and what I personally taught all those years ago. This passage, in fact, is somewhat scandalous. It, it, it includes in it one of the most shocking statements that Jesus makes that we get in all the Bible. This, is, this passage has one of those things that people point to and go, see, what's wrong with you people that you believe things like this? This woman comes in desperation pleading with Jesus on behalf of her tormented little girl, and Jesus calls her a dog. This, this, this Sunday marks for me the last Sunday that I get to preach here as a pastor at Eden Worship Center. 
And I started to work on this sermon and I went, really? This is the last sermon I get to preach here? <laughs> Jesus calls the woman a dog. Great. This is going to be encouraging. I'm excited about this. Um, and at the, the more time I put into it, the more I realized I'm actually really excited for this to be the last uh, message I get to speak to you as uh, your pastor. And um, because it's so misunderstood and so beautiful what's going on here. If we listen carefully, this story has so much to tell us about faith, the kind of faith that Jesus actually desires for us to have. So let's just look into it here. Verse 24. From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. We don't have time to really go into this, but this is the start right here of a very long trip for Jesus and the disciples into Gentile territory. So, so they've been doing ministry, and Jesus is even going to tell us here in this passage, his ministry has been to Jews, to Israel, to God's chosen people. And now begins this extended trip into Gentile territory. Ultimately, at the end of the day, they're going to walk at least 120 to 150 miles um, around in Gentile territory. It's a trip that's going to take weeks, uh, maybe even months. And on this trip, there's some very interesting things. So, so when we see that this place that's named Tyre and Sidon, these two different uh, cities, there's no major teaching events that happen in either one. Jesus is going to spend the vast majority of, of this long trip just investing in his 12 disciples. This is all about them. It's not really about anybody else. There's no major teaching events. He goes into this Gentile region, and we see this. He entered a house, and he didn't want anyone to know. He's looking for privacy. He's looking to be alone with these guys. This is a time of their teaching being intensified, and he just wants to be alone with them recharge, rest, and invest in them, but it says, yet he could not be hidden. Well, too many people know, and we've seen this as we've gone, Jesus is quite famous at this point. Too many people know who he is. So everywhere he goes, people come to him. So right now, this is sounding pretty similar to a lot of things we've read so far in, in Mark, but now this new character is introduced in verse 25. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now you don't need to turn there right now, but Matthew 15 gives us some more details on this event. It's the only other place that we see this event recorded in the Gospels. Matthew tells us this is a Canaanite woman. That's going to be very significant. A Canaanite woman came to Jesus. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So there's a couple things about, about this woman that we need to pay attention to. There's a few things about this character uh, that are really significant to what's going on. Number one, it's a woman. It's a woman approaching Jesus. That's very significant culturally. A woman doesn't just approach a man, and she sure doesn't just approach a rabbi. You don't just waltz up to him and start talking to him. And so this woman comes. There's something urgent about her coming. Next, it's a Gentile. Gentile just means not Jewish. This is not a Jewish person. It's not a worshiper of the true God. Jews saw Gentiles as unclean. Jews, there, there was significant 
bigotry going on. God had truly chosen, as we read in the Old Testament, chosen Israel, chosen a certain people. And over time, those people became bigots as a part of that. So by the time we get to the New Testament, this is a group of people that hates everybody who's not them. And so Gentile is a significant thing. This is an unclean person. What Matthew tells us about her being a Canaanite is even worse. So if it's bad to be a Gentile, it's horrible to be a Canaanite. Canaanites are specifically cursed by God. You're not just part of this broad category Gentile, not chosen by God. You're part of the Canaanites, specifically cursed by God. God had told his people to exterminate these people. That's how God felt about the Canaanites. And so there weren't supposed to be any left. So this woman that approaches Jesus is sort of the last vestige of a cursed race. Next then, it says she's a Syrophoenician. Well, what is a Syrophoenician? What does that mean? the, The name of the country that Jesus is in right now is Phoenicia. And so, so uh, Tyre and Sidon are two cities in the country of Phoenicia. And that is, uh, the, so Syrophoenician came like this. There was this Roman uh, general, uh, Ptolemy, who annexed part of, uh, annexed Phoenicia. Let's get this right. The country's Phoenicia. Ptolemy comes in and he takes Phoenicia and annexes it to Syria. So now Syria and Phoenicia are one thing, Syro. Phoenician, that actually matters. That's not just pointless information that this woman is a Syrophoenician. We'll talk about it in a second. Uh, But one commentator says this. Of all the people who approached Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, this individual has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. Verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. Even Levi the tax collector must have raised his eyebrows at this woman. And so this woman is coming to Jesus and all of her influences, everything that sort of makes her her from an outward perspective looking at her is totally rejected by the Jews. Totally rejected by this group of people she's coming to, Jesus and his 12 disciples, totally rejected by God's people. It's a woman, it's a Gentile, a Canaanite who's been corrupted by Baal worship, A Syrophoenician, which means she's been corrupted by the Romans and their gods. And to top it all off, this is happening in the city of Tyre. So she's she's all of these things, and she also lives in the city of of Tyre. The same commentator, James Edwards, says Tyre Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. So she's got all these things against her, and she lives in Tyre, which is the city where Jezebel had lived. That's the only other Phoenician woman mentioned in the Bible, Jezebel. And if you are familiar with your Old Testament at all, you know that that is not an association one would seek after for themselves. This is the city where Baal worship originated. Okay, so you've got Baal worship originating, and then you add to it because of this, and this is why that name Syrophoenician matters, because of this merging with, with Rome, you see the worship of the Roman gods as well added to it. So you've got the Babylonian gods like Baal, and you add to it the Roman gods. And so they worship this goddess called Astarte, the goddess of beauty. 
the moon goddess, which the Greek name for that is Ashtoreth. So, so in the Old Testament, we see these two gods. Baal and Ashtoreth are the two gods that Israel of old had fallen into idolatrous worship of, and God had judged them harshly for it, taking them into captivity, taking them into exile. So can you see this woman has got everything going against her? There's nothing about her to commend her to Jesus. To the Jewish mind, to even have this conversation with her, okay, she comes to Jesus and pleads with her, there's only one thing he can do, and that is send her away. Tell her to get out of here. I can't come near you. I don't want to talk to you. To have a conversation with her would be evil. It would be a discredit to Jesus. If he has a conversation with her that totally discredits her for even allowing a woman like her into his presence. Into his presence. And so she, though, comes to him. She comes to him and she knows all of this. And she comes to him anyway. Verse 26, the second half says, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. The word begged there, it means she kept asking. She kept asking over and over, please cast this demon out of, out of her daughter. Now, Matthew 15. Matthew 15 is going to shed some light on this kept asking. So Matthew 15, verse 22. Listen to Jesus' first response. So this woman comes to him desperate, right? Her little girl has a demon, an unclean spirit. That's a big deal. That would be a big deal to us, and, and we ask, well, why don't we see things like this happen in the world today? I don't know any kids that have a demon, and I would say, actually, you probably do. I see them when I go to the high school. I see them. <laughs> no, the truth is, and there's some deliverance ministries that sort of look at the sensational things that happen in the Bible, and they, they try to build this deliverance ministry that looks a lot like that. And I would say we actually do see a lot of those, those things in missions, in frontline missions. Why don't we see so much of it today? It's because Satan doesn't always operate the same. What, what, what's going to work? And so I would say in our day and age, it's not that there are less people afflicted with demons. It's that our culture is one where... The sensational frothing at the mouth, like the, like the Gadarene demoniac we read about a few weeks ago with chains and cutting himself and crying out. People would just lock that person away at this point. No, it's, it's a much more subtle thing, isn't it? And, and so this woman is in desperation. There's something going on with her daughter that has made it clear that she is... Demon possessed. And here's what Jesus says to her. His first response, Matthew 15, 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region <coughs> excuse me, came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. So what's his first response to this desperate mother? This woman at her wit's end, he, she comes to him and his first response is this. He ignores her. He doesn't even talk to her. He doesn't answer. And so Matthew tells us what she does, what this woman does in response to Jesus' non-response. 
And that is she begs the disciples. So verse 23, the second half of Matthew 15, and his disciples came begging him. So now it's the disciples begging Jesus, saying, send her away. She's crying out after us. So she comes to Jesus. Jesus doesn't respond. He just sort of ignores her. And she turns to the disciples and begins to harass them. She, she will not stop. She is desperate. She is persistent. And so Jesus responds, finally, except he doesn't respond to her. He responds to his disciples. And he says this in verse 24 of Matthew 15. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he still hasn't talked to her. This desperate woman, this crying woman, Jesus has still not talked to her. He tells the disciples, this is not what I came for. Can you even picture this playing out, how rude we would think this was? Here's this woman, desperate. Here's the man who can fix it in an instant. He won't talk to her. And the disciples, when she harasses them, he just says, I didn't come for this. It's shocking to our minds to think of this playing out the way it did. But, but that still doesn't stop her. Verse 25 of Matthew 15. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Think of the desperate. Have you ever seen a mother in desperation for her children? It's not too shocking to us that this woman wouldn't give up, that this would play out the way that it did. She's desperate. Her little daughter is demon-possessed. It's a young girl. A girl's got married at like 12, 13 years old then, so she's younger than that. She is a little girl. It's a demon-possessed child. Think of how horrifying that must have been for her mother. Matthew says it was an, an unclean spirit. This, this little child is probably manifesting this demonic possession in some terrible, terrible ways. Who knows? Who knows what kind of things were happening with this little girl? And the mother is terrified, brokenhearted, grieving. She's got nowhere to turn. She's probably tried everything. She's probably tried every god, every remedy that the Babylonians and the Romans had to offer, and nothing worked. And now she is repenting and turning to the only one that can help her. So no, she's not going to give up. She's not going to take no for an answer. She kneels before Jesus and says, Lord, help me. So now he is going to respond to her. All of this has played out. He's not responded to her. This whole scene is happening, and now Jesus is going to respond to her. Let's pick it up back in Mark. Verse 27, he said to her, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's an odd response, to say the least, to this desperate woman. Through the generations, a lot of people have misunderstood. They have stumbled over these words. What is Jesus trying to say here? Is Jesus being mean? Is that what's happening? This whole scene is playing out and Jesus is just being mean. Is Jesus having a celebrity moment? Did you know that some people have suggested that is what's happening? Jesus is just having a celebrity moment. Like, get away from me. I'm tired of being bombarded by people. Yes, I'm very famous. I know. When you're famous, you can do whatever you want. They'll let you do it. Jesus was not evil. 
He wasn't having a celebrity moment. He wasn't trying to be funny. So how do we understand this? How do we make sense of a statement like this? Well, we do what we should always do with the Bible. We read it in context. We pay attention to what's going on in the story. Where are we in the story? What's been happening? What has Jesus just been teaching about? So if you've been with us for all these weeks leading up to this, what is it that Jesus has just been teaching about? Where we've just come is Jesus teaching on what it is that makes a person clean or unclean. What determines, is a person clean or a person unclean, what determines that? And then secondly, what's the primary means that Jesus used? What's a tool that Jesus uses over and over in his teaching? And that is Jesus teaches in parables. Jesus teaches in illustrations. And so if we read this in context, we get an understanding of what's going on here, what's being said. So Jesus says it's not right to take the children's food and give it to dogs. In that day, dogs were not domesticated like they are today. They certainly weren't worshipped like they are today. I've witnessed firsthand dog worship. It's an ugly, ugly thing. Dogs were scavengers, living on the streets, eating trash, eating roadkill, whatever they could get. They were unclean. You didn't have one sitting next to you at the table like our cat often will do is jump up on a chair and just kind of be there. And then I squirt her with water. I don't, well, I do sometimes, occasionally. It's really satisfying. Do you ever squirt a cat with a water bottle? (laughs) They just, they're entitled. You know what I mean? They're not grateful. They're never grateful. Okay, so <laughs> you, didn't have a dog, you didn't have a dog just sitting next to you at a table. Now, there were a couple different kinds of dogs. There were the, the sort of outside roaming dogs. You don't want to come in contact with these dogs. These dogs will do you harm. But then there are also little dogs. There's little dogs floating around. But n- nobody sort of has these as the beloved member of the family. That's not what's going on. So even, even the little dogs are not lap dogs the way we think of dogs today. And so Jesus speaks to this mother, this mother who knows what it is like to sit down and have a meal with your family, to sit down with your children and put before them food that their father has provided for the family. That's how it worked back then. Dad provided Mom prepared and sat it down, and she, she knew what it was like to set the meal before the kids that the father had provided for them. She knew what that was like, and what Jesus is saying to her essentially is, it would be wrong to feed dogs before you fed your kids. You feed your kids. You don't take the food away from them and give it to the dogs. And so Jesus is talking about priority. The priority is this, you feed your family first, and then if you want to give the dog some food, you give the dog some food, but you don't give the dog food at the expense of the kids. And so it's critical that if we're going to understand this, because that still seems kind of harsh to us, that we understand where this is taking place in salvation history. In the history of God working with people, bringing about salvation, we need to understand this, that at the time Jesus is speaking these words, the open door of salvation truth to the Gentiles was still a future thing. It hadn't happened yet. 
Christ and, and, and God is primarily dealing with the house of Israel, with the family, and this, this open door that we enjoy today, as, as we sit in a room where maybe there's no Jewish person in the room, I don't know. The door's been flung wide open for salvation truth to the whole world. That is still a future thing when this conversation takes place. That's why there's no great teaching event in Tyre. There's no great teaching event in Sidon. And so in that sense, she is a dog. In the sense of priority. In the sense of Jesus is saying, I've come for this group of people. It would be wrong at their expense to, to, to make my focus now on the Gentiles. The bread of salvation truth is not going out to Gentiles yet. Up to this point, they've been almost entirely excluded, in fact. And Jesus is saying, it's not quite time. It's not quite time. Well, how would you respond to that? How would you respond to that? You come in desperation to the one you know can fix it, and he says, you know what, it's, it's not quite your time. Wouldn't be right. I didn't come for people like you. How would you respond if that was you? I would suggest for many of you, that still rubs you the wrong way. For many of you right now, an internal lawyer has begun his, his opening argument about why that can't possibly be right. I don't have time to argue with you. I would just say, go ahead and read your Bible. And you'll see if you start with the Old Testament and just start reading left to right, that's really what God did. It doesn't sit right with us. We don't like that. Well, how did, how did she respond? She doesn't say, that's offensive, that's not fair, that can't be right. She is amazing. She is humble. She is witty. She is insightful. Verse 28, how does she respond? She says this, she answered him, yes, Lord. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is so great. This is such a great response. She actually understands what Jesus is saying. She doesn't just kind of rise up and go, I demand that, that you treat me like this. She understands what Jesus is saying and she says, okay, I'm not disagreeing with you. Yes, Lord. I don't have any right to the covenant promises of Israel. I know I'm not at the table. The family has sat down for the table and I know I'm not at the, at the table she doesn't take offense. She doesn't see Jesus' statements as racist or sexist or bigoted. She owns her unworthiness. She just says, I know I'm on the outside. I know the Jews are a privileged people. But don't those benefits ever spill off onto the rest of us? It's such a great response. Don't miss her humility here. Her humility is a beautiful beautiful thing. I know that I am unworthy, but I also know that there is enough mercy in you for me. And she's absolutely right. She is absolutely right. She's the first person to actually understand one of Jesus's parables in the whole, in the whole thing. It's this woman who has everything going against her. This woman who, who, looking on the outside, you are totally out. You are completely unclean. You shouldn't even exist. 
And she gets it. She understands what he's saying. She doesn't come to him on the basis of her own goodness. I deserve this. I have this intrinsic worth that you have to bow your knee before. She comes to him instead on the basis of who she knows him to be. So it's not on the basis of who she is, but on the basis of who she knows him to be that she will not take no for an answer. Because of who you are, I'm not taking no for an answer. How does Jesus respond to her? Matthew 15, verse 28, he says, O woman, great is your faith. This woman has great faith. Do we want to know where to look to see great faith? This woman is an example of great faith. Great is your faith. She had great faith, and that is why Jesus ignored her. She had great faith, and that is why Jesus made the point he made about the Jews and the Gentiles. It was to demonstrate to her and to everyone else what true saving faith looks like. He saw something in her that he wanted to put on display. He was eliciting out of her evidences of this great faith that she had and was putting that faith on public display. It wasn't a test for her. Let's see if you measure up. Jesus knows that she measures up, and so he puts it on display. Verse 29, he said to her, back in in Mark, he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter And she went home and found the child laying on the bed, the demon gone. Here we see again the authority of Jesus, don't we? He doesn't even have to go there. All right, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to say the right things. We're going to cast this demon out. He just says, you can go. The demon's gone. He doesn't even have to be there. His, His power is omnipresent. That means everywhere, all the time. Matthew says her her daughter was healed instantly. Just in that moment, he just says the word, and the daughter is healed. Well, this is a beautiful picture of faith that we see in this woman. This woman provides a wonderful example of great faith, the kind of faith that Jesus Christ desires. It's kind of funny to say that because time and time again in Mark, we've always pointed to Jesus. Jesus, our example, This is not a book about us. It's a book about him. Jesus is the good guy. The other people are not the good guys. And yet Jesus puts this woman forward as an example. Oh, woman, great is your faith. She provides an example, and Jesus went to great lengths to make sure we'd see her as one. That we would see her as an example. So then what is great faith? All those years that I struggled, believing great faith was something, but not attaining it, not living up to it, not, 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 not seeing that work out in my own life, but having this desire for great faith. Don't you have a desire for that? All Christians have a desire to have great faith. Well, what is it? Jesus puts this woman forth as an example of that. To put it simply, it's this. Great faith is having humble confidence in Jesus Christ. Great faith is both humble 
and confident. Humble and confident. And if we lack either one of those things, we get off track. As with so many things in life, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. And if we lack either humility or confidence, then we're going to get off track. Real humility coupled with total confidence in Jesus Christ and what he has done. Not confidence in ourselves. Not confidence that I got this figured out. I'm finally a good enough person. I'm smart enough. No, confidence in Jesus Christ and what he has done. We need both of these things together. And when we're missing one, we're in trouble. So, so when we have confidence without humility, we come to God full of presumption. You've read all the right books. You know all the right answers. You pride yourself on being the Bible answer man at all times, everywhere. You've got all your theological ducks in a row, and then you can't figure out why your relationships always blow up. And strangely enough, it's always the other person and not you. That's the amazing thing. How can I be so wonderful and everybody else is always ruining my relationships with them? You look so good in your own eyes that you even approach God with swagger as if he's lucky to have you on his team. Like you're doing him a favor. You're full of confidence. You've got no humility. You've never actually considered the weight of your own sin. You're not truly broken over the sin that is now still in your own life or the continued presence of sin in your heart. All confidence, no humility, is not faith. It is presumption. And it is arrogance. And the confidence you have is called self-confidence. It's not confidence in Christ and his work. It has become perverted because of your lack of humility. But then when we have humility without confidence in Christ, we get completely obsessed with our own sin. We rightly see the magnitude of it. Oh, Christians, we ought to see the magnitude of our sin. How serious it is. What an offense it is against a righteous, perfect, almighty God. We see that, but then instead of trusting in Christ's atoning work, we turn to things like self-loathing and feelings of inferiority. We're the mental version of those monks that self-flagellate themselves with whips to make up for their sin. We wouldn't do that. We'd look at them and go, oh, trust in Christ. But listen, I've got to make myself miserable for a couple days because of what I did. You see the magnitude of your own sin, but you're ignoring the magnitude of your Savior's grace. You forget this truth Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, said, there's more grace in Christ than sin in us. We forget that. That plays out in my life all the time. There's more grace in Christ than, than sin in us. And when we diminish the grace of God, think about what we're doing. Think about what we're doing when we make the claim that my sin is so great that God couldn't forgive me. My sin is so great that God is mad at me. We are diminishing 
the grace of God and we are guilty of heresy. We are making false claims. We are impugning God's good name. That is a big deal, by the way. Well, these two sins seem like complete opposites. This self-confident arrogance or this self-loathing that, that just focuses on our shortcomings, they seem like opposite things, but underneath both have the same root, and that is pride. We are completely self-absorbed. So confidence without humility makes false confidence, self-confidence, and humility without confidence in Christ is a false humility. We're not humble, we're entirely self-focused. We're only and always thinking about ourselves. John Newton, who, who was a pastor in the late 1700s, you know him best by his most famous song, Amazing Grace. He, he had a young pastor friend who was struggling uh, with doubts, struggling with, with this, this humility that lacks confidence in Christ. Newton wrote him a rather pointed letter. And here's what he said. Listen close. This is kind of a long quote, but it is, it is uh, really helpful. He said, you say you are overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, you cannot be too aware of the inward and inbred evils you complain of. But you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled and, and affected by them. So in other words, he's saying it's good that, that you recognize you're a sinner. There's no such thing as being too aware of the fact that you're a sinner. There is such a thing, and it's happening with you, that you're completely controlled by that. Then he says this, you say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then not only express a low opinion of yourself, which is right, by the way, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when we examine your complaints, they are so filled with self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst sins you complain of. Newton writes to this young pastor and he says, you are so self-absorbed even, even as you feel the weight of your own sin that, that you have completely diminished the grace of God and you are so self-absorbed in, in what you're claiming as your battle against sin that, that you're sinning against God worse than the things that you're upset about that are still in your life. This pastor was not alone in that, and Newton was not wrong in his diagnosis, we are prone to that, some of us. All of us are prone to one or both of these things in this church. They both happen all the time, and in people like me, they both happen all the time. I've, I look at both, and I'm like, I'm totally prone to both of those. Great faith, though, is simply a humble confidence in Jesus Christ. This Syrophoenician woman agreed with Jesus about the state of her unworthiness, but she recognized that Jesus' mercy was greater. Jesus' mercy was truer than her unworthiness. 
This is what saving faith looks like. This is what saving faith is. To receive Jesus actually requires us to recognize our own unworthiness. It's really the only way. Again, this commentary on Mark says, it's not until you admit that, spiritually speaking, you are a dog under the table because of your sin that you will then be admitted to the table as a child of God. If you come to Jesus with the presumption that you deserve a place at the table because of how much you know, you deserve a place at the table because of where you were born, because of who you are, you are exposing in yourself a lack of humility and you will find out in the end that you have no place at the table. There's only one way we can approach God. There's only one way that saving faith works and it's in recognizing that because of our sin, we stand condemned by a holy God. I just read something this week from, from somebody I knew from years ago that, that wrote this extended thing on Facebook about, about how, here's what I don't understand about Christianity. You're really telling people that they're sinners condemned before God. What a horrible thing to say. What a terrible, terrible thing to say to a person. I would just say to us this, this is where the gospel starts. Step one of the gospel is agreeing with God's assessment of us, which scripture is very, very clear on. Because of sin, we stand condemned before a holy God. And it's only when we recognize that, only when we realize that can we realize that Jesus took our condemnation. Jesus took our uncleanness. Upon himself, in our place. To receive Jesus, we have to own our unworthiness or else what did he do on the cross? You can't believe the gospel that says you are unclean, unworthy, an object of wrath, and Christ bore it all in your place. If you refuse step one, you don't get step two. It doesn't even exist. The gospel, gospel just means good news, the truth that we stand, all, all of us, condemned before a holy God because of sin is good news to the Christian because Christ in our place paid our debt. We have to start there. To receive Jesus, you have to own your unworthiness and to receive Jesus, you have to cling to his mercy. We have to come to him based on his goodness, not our goodness. Based on his righteousness, not our merit. Great faith is the same thing as saving faith. It is the same thing as repenting faith. It's all the same. Humble confidence in Jesus Christ and his completed, his finished work. Well, where does it come from? Where does this come from? This is where I missed it for so long as a young Christian. I thought I had to generate it myself. So I'd read the latest book. Hey, Benny Hinn just wrote this book. I'm going to read it. Now if you gave me one of his books, I'd be like, good, I needed something to start the grill with. <laughs> Man, I read everything I could read. I, I listened to all the sermons. I spent late nights on my knees in the living room begging God, give me what they've got. And by his grace, he did not. 
I stand here today just incredibly grateful that I prayed that prayer and God went, ew, no. That's how I see it playing out. This lady got great faith the same way everybody gets great faith. The same way we'll see Peter in a couple chapters. The same way everybody does in the book of Acts. It comes by the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. It is a gift of God through the Holy Spirit. That's how you get great faith. God gives it to you. The Heidelberg Catechism is this 16th century catechism. It just means questions and answers that they use to teach the faith. And and here's question and answer number 21 from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is true faith? Or we could say great faith or saving faith. Here's what it says. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. It's also a deep-rooted assurance, confidence, Created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven. I have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation. This kind of humble confidence, this kind of great faith, this kind of saving faith, this kind of repentant faith, it all comes, all of it, By the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something we have to work up for ourselves. It's not a matter of, you know, late at night I was there and I just was, I knew that breakthrough was coming. I knew it was coming and then I would finally have great faith. It's not something we work up. It's not some elusive gift that only the spiritual elites get to receive. It is for all who come to Jesus in humility. Now, maybe you're like me and you say, it hasn't played out in my life like that. I would say maybe your definition of great faith is not the same one Jesus showed us here. And I would also say we ought to examine our lives and see where we are lacking in humility. See where we are lacking in confidence in Christ and are operating in self-confidence, self-focused, self-absorption. I'm not against spending hours on your knees praying for faith. I think it's a good thing to do, but let's aim at the right target while we're doing it. Musicians, if you want to make your way up front, we're going to come into a a time of communion together. This story is all about who can sit at the Father's table. Jesus uses that example, this this family seated at a table, the Father has provided, and the family sits together to dine, and he uses this example and says the kids get that food. In Christ, we have been welcomed to the table. Through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. You see, this same Jesus who, who told this woman, listen, the door's not fully open for salvation truth to the Gentiles, would go to the cross and bear the sin of Gentiles like me, bear, bear the sin of, of, of people like me who have rebelled against God for decades so that I'd have a place at the table. Not because I'm worth anything apart from him. It's because of him, who he is. It's because God in his mercy gives. This is the lengths that God has gone to to reconcile us to himself. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin. That's the lengths that God has gone to and now we're called to come to him in humble confidence in the finished work of his son Jesus Christ. When we read those words that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we just trust in him. And when we come to God in that way, he will not turn us away. Those years that I struggled saying, God, why don't you answer my prayers? Why does it seem to happen for me the way it happens for all these other people? Why does it feel like you're turning me away? The truth is, when we come to, to God in just humble confidence in his finished work, he will not turn us away. Like this Syrophoenician woman who seemed to be the most unclean, the most unworthy, the most unfit. God will honor the faith that he has given to you as a gift of his Holy Spirit for his own namesake, for his own glory, for your eternal joy. So let's stand up together. As always, we'll come from the front, receive the cup, receive the bread, come back to your seats, and we'll share in, in communion together. On this side over here is wine. On this side over here is juice. So if your conscience leads you one way or the other, please feel free to cross the room and go there. And I would just urge you, take a moment to search your heart before God. Has God been convicting you? Maybe, maybe you're like me and, and it's both of these. There were a lot of painful moments preparing this message this week where I just said, I'm really both. I'm really both of these, these things. I'm just so full of pride, so self-absorbed. Man, take a moment before God. Repent of that sin. Confess your trust in him. Maybe you haven't been trusting him. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Or you're not sure. You thought you were and now you don't know. Maybe you've been walking in willful sin. You, you know that, that God has told us how we ought to live and you've been doing something else. If that's you this morning, I'd urge you just not to come to the table this morning. Not because we think we're better than you. Not because we think you're hopeless. We just read a story of someone who should be hopeless. And Christ puts her forward for us as an example of great faith. No, we ask you not to come because we love you and we care about you. It's so important that we fix our eyes on Christ. Turn to him. And so if that's you this morning, I would just urge you, take this time to fix your eyes on him. Call out to him. 
Ask him to save you. Ask him to cleanse your sins, to apply that finished work of the cross to your life, to fill you with his Holy Spirit, and he will do it. And then come, come talk to somebody, and we want to pray with you. We want to walk with you. So after we've taken a moment, we'll, we'll come and receive the elements, and then we'll share in them together.